Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. The Oregon Healthcare Interpreters Association is pleased to announce the launch of its new interpreter directory. Join OHCIA's interpreter directory and be ready for what's next. The interpretation industry is changing. Laws are being passed that require more certification. More and more interpretation is going remote with video or phone. Machine interpretation is getting better and better. Plus, Companies are cutting costs for services like interpretation. If you aren't certified, don't want to use technology, don't have special skills, and don't have the ability to be flexible, you'll get less and less work as an interpreter. The OHCIA's Interpreter Directory, or ID, can help. It brings together interpreters and the organizations that hire them so they can help each other provide much-needed interpretation services. The ID is free to all interpreters forever. It's paid for by subscription fees charged to hiring organizations. It lists trained, certified interpreters, so hiring organizations can trust the quality of the services offered. Interpreters can list specialties, availability, and more, so hiring organizations can easily find talent. OHCIA are the right people to bring interpreters and organizations together like never before. Their leadership has deep roots in the interpreter community and care deeply about where this industry is going. They have advocated for interpreters and healthcare interpretation since 2010, and they're trusted by individuals and organizations alike. To find out more about OHCIA's interpreter directory, check out the link in the episode notes. Welcome back, language professionals from around the world, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and I cannot believe that we're only weeks away from the end of the year. Crazy, right? And yet here you are, hanging on with me. So thanks for coming back, and thanks for tuning in. I actually ended up getting a bit sick um, these last couple of weeks. This is like week three, and I am about 95% and have been sitting on 95% better for a little bit over a week. So I'm glad that I'm well enough to be able to record uh, for today's episode. So yeah, stay healthy, be safe out there, and I really hope that you're doing great. I wanted to also mention that in case you missed it, Yulia Spuroff joined us live on Thursday, December 15th. So if you missed it, make sure you go on to the YouTube channel to check out her video and tune in to her answering some of your questions. Also, lots of new and great and exciting things to come next year. So if you want to make sure that you don't miss out on some of the stuff that will be rolling out next year, make sure that you're connected either on social media with me 
or on the email list or both. And that way you don't miss out on things to come. So if you're going to join the email list, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and fill out the little form. If something else pops up, it's probably your default that you have for your email. Just send me a connect form and send me your email address and I'll make sure that you're added to the email list. And lastly, if you are someone that has a great story to share or great stories to share and resources, or there's a message that you really want to get out for other language professionals out in the language industry, feel free to connect with me. Let's chat a little bit about what you've got in mind. And that way we can share out more resources and more stories about our profession with other language professionals. Or if you know of someone that would be a great fit for the show, feel free to send me their name and I'll make sure to do my due diligence and see if they would be a great fit. Okay, and now on with the show. Carlos Núñez grew up in Mexico and studied general business at Eastern Michigan University. He returned to Oregon in 2015 to work as an independent contractor in the interpretation business and to assist in their family business. He is a court-certified Spanish interpreter and a qualified medical interpreter with the Oregon Health Authority. Carlos enjoys working with nonprofits the most, particularly with organizations working on environmental issues and social justice issues. He is the president-elect for the Oregon Healthcare Interpreter Association. And today, Carlos joins the Brand the Interpreter podcast to share his story. So, without further ado, please welcome... Carlos Núñez to the show. Carlos, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Mireya. I'm pretty excited to be here as well. Um, I'm excited to talk a little bit further with you about your personal journey and also about the other, the all the uh, amazing things that you're doing out there in Oregon. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad we're going to have this conversation today. Definitely. Definitely. Let's get started by having you take us a blast to the past. And, you know, you look quite young, so it's not too far <laughs> into the past. Well, um, thank you. But you would be so kind as to taking us into a fond childhood memory of yours and tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what a fond childhood memory is. Okay. Um, that is simple. My parents gave us a great upbringing, so... I'll come up with just one. Uh, I grew up in Mexico City, um, born in 1990, so I lived there for 14 years. And I think what I really enjoyed, it was, you know, my dad had one of those old school video cameras. So in our birthdays, they would take us to this theme park, which was called Reino Ventura. It ended up being turned into Six Flags. But, you know, they would just get a small group of our friends, three, four of us. And we'd go around the park, you know, and the rides and whatnot. And my dad would go around with his video camera, very old school. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's pretty fun because we've been able to go back and take a look at him and be like, oh, yo, you remember this guy, Limon? Let's see what happened to him. And it was just <laughs> it was just nice and funny. Yeah. Now, are you having to watch them via VHS or are those CDs now? Oh, my God. It wasn't even a VHS. It was like one of those fat tapes. I don't know how we watched it then. I think he <laughs> he had to put it on the camera and then plug it into a computer. I'm sure it's lost by now. It's, you know, very old technology. I might have to uh, delete this part of, 
of the question that I just asked you, because I might have just dated myself, but <laughs> I was just curious because back in my day, I totally just used that line. It was definitely the big VHS tape yep. into the camcorder. So that's hilarious. Plus a great memory for you because of course it's recorded. So you're able to go back. No, it was, it was nice. And you know, it's nice to see my mom. She's super adventurous. She'll go into any ride. She's just fearless. So it's really nice to see her enthusiasm and she still have it. You know, she's, um, I won't tell you how old she is, but for a birthday, I took her skydiving and, you know, she accepted and we jumped off a plane and it was really cool. Wow. Skydiving. Yeah, that's super adventurous and courageous. Yeah, she's she's cool, mom. We like her a lot. <laughs> so what was it like growing up in Mexico City? Were you surrounded by languages or was it mainly, you know, the Spanish language for, for 14 years of your life? How was that? So there was definitely more than Spanish. Because both of my parents, even though they're Mexican, they spend time in the U.S. So I think my dad was born in Mexico, but actually spent six years in the U.S. from one till six, one till seven, and then moved back to Mexico. So his first language was English. And my mom, she also spent time in the U.S. She grew up in Mexico, and at age 14, she moved to the States. So they met in Mexico, and since they were bilingual, they knew it was just very important to make sure that we spoke English. So, you know, we'd have like the regular try and teach us how to learn English. So my dad would say, hey, only English starting now. And, you know, that would last about four hours till the communication wasn't happening. <laughs> um, you know, I remember we'd watch a lot of movies in English and he would put a piece of tape on top of the subtitles so that we'd have to actually listen to it. So, yeah, he was rigorous about us learning English wow. and um, my brother he got pretty good at it and actually my mom she ended up working at a language school she was and she taught both Spanish and English so we we're surrounded by it all the time and I think at about age nine maybe ten they decided it was a good idea to have us start learning French so we're taking French lessons and then the school we were at started teaching French. So, yeah, just surrounded by languages. I can tell you I was not very good at French. I did not like it. I refused to want to learn it. But, uh, yeah, thinking back on it, I wish I had put a little more attention to those classes. Yeah, no kidding. I, I could totally relate. I, I could not find myself with the French language either. So, sorry, teacher. And I'm sure I gave her a bunch of gray hairs because it was just like... I was in high school when I started taking French. And yes, I can totally relate. I just could not make the connection for some reason. And you um, think, you know, it'd be easy because we speak Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> Romance languages, it should be there. But yeah, something about French. At the age of 14, you said you were only in Mexico City uh, for 14 years or till the age of 14. What happens? Uh, we moved to the States. So we had family up here. And uh, my grandmother was close to L.A. And my grandfather, my dad's side, was in a town called Tillamook, which is about two hours from Portland. And we wanted to come to Portland. So not too close to my to family, but close enough where we could be there, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, we're just down in Mexico. And I think my parents had an idea to come up here for a while. But they just hadn't, you know, pulled the trigger on it. They were hesitant you know i mean you have a life and 
friends, families down there. I think there was an incident in particular where where I used to go swimming. Uh, unfortunately, one of the kids got kidnapped and he was gone for a few days. Uh, they found him. He was fine. Uh, but I think that really worried my parents. You know, that really hit close home. So they're like, okay, we're packing up and we're leaving. So as soon as the school year was over, we moved up to Portland. Um, I guess my parents dropped us off in L.A. with my grandma. And they went up and looked for work, an apartment, you know, just brand new life. So as soon as the school year was about to start, they brought us up to Portland. And yeah, we, we were new in town. Wow. So two questions with that, because I'm always curious when uh, such a move is made at a young age. Uh, but but there is a certain age, I feel, that that maybe is a little bit harder, which is those teenage years, right? When you're finally kind of acclimating to what your personality really is set on, or maybe, maybe you're still even, you know, it, trying to figure yourself out at, at that point. You're like at that turning point. So at 14, you come here to the States that's around, I don't know, maybe it, were you freshman in high school? Did you go straight to high school or were you still eighth grade? No, I was going into freshman year of high school. So what was that culture shock for you if there was any? It was hard. It was hard to make friends. Um, you know, I'm very outgoing, very talkative person. But when I moved here, I mean... My English was good enough that I could sit in a classroom, but it's not really good enough that I could have conversations just very easily with people. Mm. So it's very different, you know, going from having just a ton of friends to no friends and just not being able to make them because, you know, folks don't understand you. And luckily, I did have an outlet. I was a swimmer growing up in Mexico. And so when I moved here, it was important for my parents to keep me in a swim team. So, you know, when you're with folks your age working out every day it's easy to build bonds so I was able to make friends there um you know I think it's the same thing here or in Mexico anywhere you're practicing a sport with a bunch of kids you you're bound to get along with them Um, but it was different in school it was kind of hard and per se actually school was really easy you know we went from Mexico we had like 13 subjects really hard like School was not easy, but coming here, we had six yeah. and like it's English class and I'm getting A's and I'm one of a few people getting A's. So it just didn't click. I'm like, no, like this, this is pretty simple. Uh, so that part was nice and easy. Yeah. Education in the U.S. is easy. <laughs> you had told me, you had shared with me um, pre-session or pre-recording that the weather was a shock. Uh, Share with us a little bit about it. that. Well, you know, you're in Mexico. I mean, you're t-shirt shorts most of the time, although we wear jeans because we dress really nice all the time. You know, you have to dress nice in Mexico all the time. But um, yeah, coming up here, nonstop raining. Oh, it's cloudy all the time. You know, it even snowed and we're like, what is this? Like, it just was so foreign to us. So that's pretty hard. Um I don't know that seasonal depression kicked in, but definitely there's like a gloomy mood amongst all of us. Like, just what is it? You know, I remember a time that my dad told my mom, hey, I'm going to take you to the beach. And she was super excited. You know, she gets her swimsuit, um, her sombrilla, you know, for the for the sun. And she gets there and, you know, it's not for the sun. It's pouring rain and it's cold. Yeah, the Oregon coast is just not what she expected. But you guys stayed. You guys didn't move, right? We did. No, we stayed. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we had family here, and I think my parents were pretty sad in thinking that we were going to have a better future here. And it's hard to say what would have happened, right? But they felt that we were safer here. And, you know, me and my brother chat about this all the time. Like, we realize this struggle that they went through. And we realize how hard it was for them to really leave everyone. You know, just so many friends that they had had for years. They're all back there. Um, so, you know, they, like, I understand me and my brother had to start over, but we start over a short life. They mm-hmm. start over a really long life. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate, you know, that they, they did that for us. Um, and yeah, it's just, they had, they hadn't said that this was going to be all right, you know, and both of them, they're really hard workers. My mom was working, uh, at, a an, an apartment complex. So first she was just, uh, not just, she was one of these sales reps. And then she became a manager of a smaller property. No, she was getting promotions. So she was working hard. And my dad, I think he, I think he started teaching English actually. And then he was working maintenance. But what he had in mind is he wanted to be an interpreter. So he really? had done, yep. He had taken some courses down in Mexico, I think with Berlitz to be a conference interpreter. And in here, you know, in Oregon, the really only avenue back then, this would have been like 2005, 2006, was to be a court interpreter. So he put his mind to it and he got studying. And it was kind of nice to see, nice to see him studying. You know, I mean, he's out there working all the time. And then when he'd get home, he would ask my brother to write stories uh, with scripts. And then my brother would dictate for him and he would work in his consecutive or I would dictate for him or me and my brother would have a conversation. He was interpreting it. So it was really nice to see him. He worked really hard for it. And once he was able to get certified, it definitely helped with finances and, you know, moving the family along. Wow. So your dad ended up getting uh, becoming a certified court interpreter in Oregon sometime after. Yeah, I think I think it was two years and then he got the certificate. Wow. And I mean, he's a hard worker. He was, you know, always had his own businesses in Mexico. And um, just here, like, it was really interesting chat with him because he's like, you know, as soon as I got certified, it's not like phone calls just come out of nowhere. You know, he's like, you know, I had to start calling people. You know, I had to visit all the schedulers. I had to make myself available. So he really taught me what it took, right, to really get out there, get out there and get after it, try and find those clients and how to retain those clients. So yeah, he was just, you know, doing good work. We're going to get into how you end up getting involved in the language industry as well. But first, I'm I'm curious to know, did you have aspirations as a kid, uh, career aspirations? Did you sort of think about what you wanted to be when you grew up? Or did that change maybe when you moved to Oregon? What was that like for you growing up? You know, I think that when I was really little, I wanted to be an attorney. Um just because my dad had studied law, but I mean, that's a very broad thing, right? Because there's so many different kinds of attorneys. Um, so I don't think it's like a concrete thing. And my main passion was swimming. I, that's all I care about. I just wanted to swim. I luckily was fairly talented and I worked really hard. So I just want to go to the Olympics. That was my main goal. Um, and, you know, in Mexico, like I was fairly competitive nationally, but once you move to the state, you're competing in a 
much bigger pond. Mm. So, you know, that kind of kicked in the reality of, okay, I probably won't be making the Olympics, uh, but perhaps I can get a college scholarship. And that was just my goal for the four years that I was here. It's okay, swim morning, swim afternoon, swim Saturdays. You know, my head was underwater most days, all days. Um, and yeah, that was just the goal, get a college scholarship. And of course, I didn't think, oh, what do I want to do? No, I just said, okay, get into school. That'll be it. Um, so I did, and I got into business. But as far as whether I knew what I wanted to do, no, I I didn't. I It wasn't really a thought. You know, I just, I knew that there was a trajectory that I needed to follow. And I had a fairly, I had a good opportunity to get there. So mm-hmm. I just had to follow that and not worry about anything else. You mentioned just now very quickly that, so you end up focusing on business is what you do in school. Yes. So I went to school and at Eastern Michigan University, they were kind enough to give me that swimming scholarship. <laughs> so they, it was really nice. They paid for half and then um, my education, well, whatever other grant I got paid for the other half. So most schooling was paid for, which was super nice. Yeah. Um. And yes, I got into business really because I didn't know what else to do. So mm-hmm. first I was starting to start international business with a minor in French. And because I did keep studying French. I was going to say that if yeah. French came back, huh? Yeah, I had to stick with it. <laughs> but we needed to pick a language in high school. So I picked French. So yeah, that was just part of my life. <laughs> um, and ended up that. The last, the final degree I was was business management and a minor in French literature. Uh, why French literature? Because there's less courses compared to a French minor, so it's just a little bit easier. Strategic. Yes, <laughs> uh, but it was nice. Um, you know, one of my really good friends and roommate throughout college, he was from Belgium, so we got to practice our French quite often, and it was it was just really nice. Yeah, yeah, that that that's always helpful when you've got somebody to have a conversation with in in that other language. Yes, I'm sure he got frustrated. He's like, "Oh, just this takes so long." Kind of like my dad when I was young, you know. That's so funny. So, talk to us now about when the opportunities to kind of get involved in the language industry um, started happening. Was there ever an interest? I mean, I know you saw your dad studying. And knowing that he wanted to get into the field, but did that ever spark any interest for you? Or that was just something that was your dad's thing? Yeah, I didn't really have that as a goal, to be honest with you. It just happened that after college, I, you know, I need a job. Like, what am I going to do? So really quickly, I applied to several agencies to work as an interpreter. And I had actually worked with or for Language Line when I was still in school. I would work there Saturdays and some odd days, which I didn't really love, but you know, I had my landline phone. A um, little ashamed to say this, but it was like a hamburger phone. So I thought it was kind of cute. <laughs> um, but they did teach me how to note take, which is a skill that I still use. So thank you, Language Line Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how I got started with them. But yes, after I stopped working with them and I started working, so I told you I applied for those language agencies, but my main job was working at State Farm selling insurance, which is not what I loved, but it was a job and it was paying the bills. Uh, So I was, I told you that my schooling was 
almost fully paid for, but I still owe 24000 when I came out. So I was working at State Farm. Then I was working at a bar Thursday, Friday, Saturdays. I was helping with my dad's company. I was doing a lot of the billing for him. So I had a glimpse of what the interpreting life looked like. You know, I could see how much we were paying medical interpreters versus legal interpreters. Mm -hmm. I could see how much we were billing clients. So that gave me a good aspect of it. And from, I think, a summer, I had helped him with scheduling. So I had, like, a good view of what the whole company looked like. Um, And aside from doing those jobs, I was also interpreting for one of the agencies who would call me to go to hospital at nights. So... Needless to say, I was really busy, but it was nice to go into the hospitals and get, you know, a little bit of extra money, uh, just stay there for the night. Um, So that's kind of how I got started. And now, how did I get here to work as an interpreter? So um, about a year into my work with State Farm, I I went to go on a vacation. I was planning a three-week vacation with my partner at the time. And I went and I told my boss, and I said, hey, can I be gone three weeks? And she looked at me and she said, well, one week I can pay you. The second week I would not pay you. The third week you cannot go. And I was pretty bummed out. You know, I'm like, I'm 23 years old. I'm trying to go see the world. And I had someone that was telling me that I couldn't. And then she, which mind you, I love this person. She's still in my life and I appreciate her a lot. But she looked at me straight in the eye pointed her finger at me and said, you work for me. Whatever money you're making, it's coming back to me. And it was very much like, uh, hey, I own your time. That's how I took it. So I I figured, well, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to be in Michigan. So I had actually planned to go abroad and teach English. So I went and got my TEFL certificate uh, on the weekends. And I had lined up a job to go teach in Turkey. And, but my dad called and he said, Hey, I don't really want to go to go Turkey. Why don't you come here? And, you know, it's that back and forth for about a couple months of, no, I want to go live free and, you know, go live abroad. But anyways, he convinced me and he said, you know, you come here, you can help me work in sales at the company and then you can get certified and then you'll be able to travel on your own time and have some money to do it. So you know, I listened to my dad. So I came back to Oregon. The voice of reason, huh? I, <laughs> you I wanted to so. go backpacking and uh, <laughs> dad was like, just save some money first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of had one. But, you know, by that time I was, um, I had paid off my student loans. So I kind of felt free, right? I felt like I could do anything. Mm-hmm. But um, it that thing that my boss had said to me that I worked for her and the money went to her, it stuck to me in two ways. One of them, I didn't want to work for anyone else. And secondly, if I'm going to help someone else work, I want it to be in my family. So working with my dad kind of seemed to fit the bill. Yeah, not that I want to uh, necessarily tell your dad's story. I mean, I, I would, that'd be great. But in this case, it's, you know, we are talking about Carlos, your story. But it sounds like your dad ended up... Um, it, creating his own agency, correct? I mean, he went from being a court-certified interpreter to creating his own, his own agency, a language service provider. So it gave you that insight of the back end of things, right? Like what that what that's like. So you're, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds by being the person that's going out there and providing the service, but then you also get to see what happens behind the scenes, correct? Yes, and I glossed over that part. Thanks for catching that. <laughs> so Just as what... soon as people know me. 
<laughs> what what about you know the the work led you to say yes because you know you could have said well I'm I'm just not interested in that but there was maybe something there that that kept you uh, working and trying to to help your dad so do you know what that was I don't and I've thought about it a lot because I know that my life could have been very different but I think that I. Part of me wanted to be close to my family. Mm. You know, I had been gone for what four, six years, and there was just some comfort about being close to him. And uh, I think I was going out and having too much of a good time, and it made sense to kind of be home and kind of relax and get away from that. Uh, so that was that was helpful. But yeah, in reality, I don't know, Mireya. I wish I had like taken notes on what my thoughts were back then as of yeah. why I was going to head back, but I didn't. And <laughs> it just, it made sense. You know, at some point my mom flew out and we drove back and it felt good being home. You know, my dad and I, we didn't have the best relationship. You know, I was kind of a punk when I was a teenager. So Where we, we left, we left in like not the best terms, right? I mean, we talked like I was helping him, but it was not the best. And it was really nice being able to work with him. I feel like our relationship has strengthened a lot. Um, now we have a great relationship, not just work-wise, but outside of work and with him and my mom. So I don't know if that played into the equation, but that's been a result of it, uh, which I love. That's great. Then, you know, just proves to you that you made the right decision because that is a great outcome. So Carlos, what do you do now? Bring us to present day because you ended up uh, becoming a court certified interpreter, correct? Yes. So this was 2015 when I moved back and I, I did become a court certified interpreter, I think 2016. The process was a bit long then, right? You needed to go take an orientation and go pass an English exam, which those went well. And then I needed to take the oral exam. And I think that's a scary part for most folks, which it's it's a test that anyone can pass, but it does take a lot of studying. So, you know, that same year I was that I was prepping for the being a court interpreter, I happened to get a scholarship through OHCIA to become a medical interpreter. So I won it at a raffle. So it was really nice. Wow. Uh, look at yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. I was really happy. So I was taking those classes, but I was really studying for the other test, you know? And when I'm telling you I was studying, I was spending at least one hour every evening going over simultaneous or consecutive. And then on Sundays, I would spend about six hours studying. And it was really nice because I had my dad who was helping me. He was like, look, this is what I did. This is like the blueprint. Go ahead and do it. Then I realized how hard it was. Um, but yeah, I just got working on it every day for... I want to say five or six months, which, you know, you don't get a whole lot of time outside of that, but it paid off. You know, I went and took the test. I was super nervous, super nervous. I remember tripping up a couple of times, but uh, I came out and I'm like, oh, maybe it's kind of a toss up. And I did end up passing. Um, yeah, I remember my dad gave me a big hug. I was like, oh, it's, it's unexpected. <laughs> What do uh, you attribute to your successful uh, passing um, of the of the examination on the first try? Um, do you think that it would 
that it's a combination of things? Or have you thought about, you know, obviously the practicing and studying for it absolutely helps, I imagine. But do you attribute anything else to your successful passing of it? I don't think so. I think it's all about the amount of time you put into it. You know, it's really, since I was an athlete I and I love sports, it's very easy for me to think, oh, that person's talented. That's why they're good. But a lot of times we don't look at what they're doing to really make that talent flourish. Mm-hmm. So I think that perhaps I'm okay at interpreting. You know, I have pretty good memory. I already knew how to take notes, which is very helpful in such a test. So again, thank you, Language Line Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in reality, I think it was just the amount of practice. I think what really helped me was knowing that what the speed of the simultaneous was going to be. They In Oregon, they test you at 120 words per minute. And if you sit down and listen to a YouTube video at 120 WPM, the words per minute, you realize that it's actually pretty slow. So what I did is I was practicing at really fast speeds, like 185, 200. And when I was comfortable at that speed, then as I was coming up to the test about two, three weeks before, I started slowing down again. And it just made me feel so much more comfortable that I could handle that speed. So uh, there was that. And I'll start meditating. I I think meditating helped a ton because I was able to remain focused for a lot longer. I think a lot of times before that, my mind would just, even when I was interpreting consecutive, I'd get a random thought. I'm like, oh, I didn't hear what they said. But as my meditation practice solidified, I was able to really listen to what's being said and just, you know, focus on that. So I think that's a, that's a tip that doesn't get out there too often that folks should definitely implement in their life. No, I'm like sitting here in awe, like, hey, I could have been doing something like that already to help improve my focus. I never even thought about meditating, uh, you know, for 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 that aspect. So that's amazing. Thank you for that. And I was just going to say there sounds like there there are a lot of things that absolutely could have contributed i mean potentially it wasn't something that you were necessarily thinking about but um you just mentioned the the meditation right and then of course the note taking uh, techniques that also already experienced and and learned about um you know through in practice uh and experience working and i was going to also say uh, potentially even understanding the the practice rigor Thanks to your swimming practices and knowing that, you know, you you really needed to practice in order to get to whatever level you you wanted to get to. So um, I think all of those things in combination absolutely are something that uh, are very helpful in, in just setting up to to study for anything that we'd like to to focus on. Right. So all of those things in combination are absolutely helpful. The meditation part is really good. Actually, I hadn't heard of that about that. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, just throw it out there. I ended up getting to Vipassana meditation. So that's when you do a 10-day retreat that's silent. So no speaking, no eye contact. Uh, but when you come out of those things, like you're just on a different level. What is it no, called again? Vipassana. I'll send you a link uh, okay. so you can post it. It's super great. If folks have the time to do it, I definitely recommend it. Slide 10 changes. days retreats? Yes. You have known anything? No talking, no, no. no talking, no eye contact. And I'm sure you're a talker like me. So it's going to be hard. The first day you're like, oh, God, you know, you're sitting in front of someone having a meal, but you can't be like, oh, this tofu is great. No, you got to <laughs> keep that to yourself. 
I don't know that I'd ever say something like that, but I get what you're saying. Oh gosh. Yeah. Wow. 10 days of that. But I could also sort of imagine um, the outcome to that um, if 10 days of nothing, it's like this, this almost like hyper uh, focus potentially on those things, especially oh, for yes. us that suffer from ADD. I'm, I'm self-diagnosed. I have no idea if actually I do have it, but I imagine I do because everything distracts me. So that that's an awesome tip. Thank you so much, Carlos. You also briefly mentioned something about OHCIA. Could you talk to us about that? First of all, break down the acronym for us. Yes. One of my favorite nonprofits in Portland is the Oregon Healthcare Interpreter Association. They've been around since, I want to say, 2008, 2009. Um, and I attribute the success to this one woman named Susana Mulano. She has really carried the torch and made it happen. And, you know, part of the reason why it's there is because we really needed to push uh, medical certification. I really don't know how it's worked in other states, so I can only speak of Oregon, right? But uh, the certification for medical interpreters existed. But really, it was hard to access. There's really no information. There was not a whole lot of courses. And, uh, you know, the hospitals were asking for it. Susanna really wanted this to happen. So she got together some folks and started teaching classes um, in auditoriums. So you had like 60 to 100 people that were attending. And, you know, the rules have changed between whether we needed 40 hours or 60 hours. And that's mandated by the state. So we just follow their rules, right? Um, yeah, and they're just, I mean, it's just what it is. It's an organization pushing to certify interpreters through classes and doing advocacy work for interpreters. Whenever there's a rule that they're trying to pass, you typically have someone from the board that is sitting there and, you know, wanted to be a voice for interpreters. And, of course, we want interpreters at the table as well. But, uh, you know, the organization is at least there and we're trying to bring their voices out. You went from court interpreting into um, getting interested in medical or you were always involved because of when you were freelancing or how did those those two specialties come come to be? So I mentioned I got that scholarship. So, yay, I got <laughs> certified through CCHI. Um, unfortunately, that certification did lapse, and that's my mistake. It was not theirs. I did not send in my CEUs appropriately. Um, but the hard part, actually, what why I didn't pursue it so much is because once you go through your classes, you have to apply to the state, to the Oregon Health Authority. Mind you, I love them, but in this time, 2016, they did not know what was going on. So I applied. I reapplied. It was like an eight-month process to try and get on the state registry, and I was never able to do it. And you can imagine as a freelancer that you're, you know, just trying to get ahead in the profession, and you're just coming up on so many roadblocks that, you know, something was like, oh, your picture size is not big enough. Oh, the certificate you sent me had a shadow in it. I can't read it. Just ridiculous stuff that should not have happened. Is so this I kind of court or medical? Medical. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, OHA, Oregon Health Authority. So I lost some interest in that. But the thing is that we, me working with my dad's company, we're always involved in that realm, right? Mm. Um, we're not working directly with hospitals. We're helping out with a lot of IMEs, independent medical examinations. Uh, that was mainly the medical work we were doing. 
But uh, luckily, I think 2017 or 18, we started helping Le one of the hospitals here. I want to say Legacy was our first client. And first, we're just coming in doing simultaneous interpretation for some of their classes. And then they gave us a chance to come in and provide medical interpretation as well. So we had to go find the medical interpreters. Luckily, there was a registry. And we've always had a good relationship with Susanna and the organization. The founder of my dad's company, well, my dad and someone else founded it together. He, his name is Ignacio Scudero. He was really good friends with Susanna. You know, they had just been in the industry for a long time. Mm -hmm. So we've known her oops, for a long time. For a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of why I was associated with medical interpreting. And the more work that we're picking up as a company, it was more in the medical field. So it made sense, you know, hey, get back in and finish your certificate. Network with more medical interpreters. So it's just been the way things have been moving. I don't know that it was planned this way, but things have just been rolling towards working more in the medical field. It's very helpful when you do uh, know people that are uh, out in the field and, and are um, connected in one way or another to the profession, um, particularly when they have the, uh, I, I dare to say, appropriate standards in mind of, um, you know, just the environment that an interpreter should be functioning in and for. Uh, and I'm curious, in your case, you know, when you started going out, looking for these opportunities and things like that, was there anything that you were doing specifically to promote yourself and your service separate from your father's company? Um, you've mentioned before that you believe in individual marketing is important. Talk to us a little bit more about that and how other freelancers could potentially uh, utilize some of these skills or aspects in order to be able to promote their services. Definitely. So before promoting the company, I was trying to promote my own services, right? I needed to build a clientele. And really quickly, I noticed that um, my dad as core interpreter was getting calls from public defenders. And he would just de decline him. He said, I'm too busy. So what I did is I went out to visit public defenders offices. And I came in and I told them, hey, I'm Carlos Nunez. I'm new in town. I have worked as an interpreter. I'm not certified yet. And my plan is to get certified on this date. Um, if you ever need help, please let me know. And I knocked on a ton of doors, as many as I could find. You know, I would just make a list of every city that was close to me, where all the public defenders worked, and I would go knock on their doors. And turns out that some folks did call me. So I was starting to do jail visits before I was certified. And, it, you know, my client, my personal clientele grew. And then I was also going in and knocking on doors for rehabilitation clinics, a lot of rehab, a lot of PT. Um, the reason why I was going to PT is because PT is able to build workers' comp. And as an interpreter, I can build workers' comp directly. I don't need to go through an agency. I don't need a contract. So it's easier to get that work, right? And I mean, there's a lot of nuances and you know things that go along with it that one has to know about just how their particular laws work and how to build them but i'm able to build them and what i found is that small clinics would be a lot more receptive when i would come in and say hey i'm an interpreter i want to interpret for you versus hey i'm with this company and i want to give you these services 
it seemed that they wanted that personal connection. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. You know, I want to know who my baker is. Like they wanted to know that if they were calling, they were getting me. So that that's very eye-opening to me. And one thing that I would like to mention that I think uh, perhaps goes unsaid is that a lot of clinics we as interpreters don't have access to. Because, you know, I'd come in and, and it took me a long time, it took me hours to learn this. But a lot of clinics only bill state insurance. And me as an interpreter, I don't have access to bill that state insurance. Here they call the Oregon Health Plan, Medicaid, Medicare. So individually, since I cannot bill them, they cannot bring me on. And they have a short list of interpreting agencies they can work with. Hmm. So I spawned my wheels for a long time, knocking on doors that... I should not have been knocking it. Mm. So I think before anyone goes out and tries to do that, like had I known that, it would have been great. Uh, but right. I didn't. So, But it saved you some time. Right, right. Yes. But it did do one thing. It made me really have to understand where the money was coming from and how I could tap into it. So I knew individually I can build workers' comp or I can build directly. Perfect. Can I build auto insurance? No, I can't. In this state, they won't pay for it. Okay, that's good to know. That way I'd be able to give that information. And again, Medicaid, Medicare, no. So I'm like, okay, could I ever crack into that as an independent contractor? The answer as of today is no. They most The largest um, insurance companies, they only hire companies. So that's okay. It's not on Carlos's bucket. It's going to be on the bucket for the company. Mm-hmm. And how to get there, well, that's a different story, right? Um but I think knowing that, knowing if you can get paid, that's number one. Um, so that's very helpful to me. And I think what helped me a lot is that I had worked sales at the insurance company. And if you have ever tried to sell insurance in the Midwest, like people are rude. You know, you're calling <laughs> someone at six o'clock. You, they tell you the worst things you want to hear. They're like, oh, you're in the middle of dinner. Oh, they hang up on you. Um so I think that built uh, like a big callus around me. So I'm like, okay, you know, like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? <laughs> that's so funny. You do believe in in having interpreters breaking away from only working with agencies, which is really interesting considering your background and you know your 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 father's background, obviously, in the company that that he runs. But talk to us a little bit more about this because there are a lot of freelancers that do listen to this podcast. And I think that would be an interesting take for them to consider if they're trying to expand their their services or expand, you know, their clientele. Yes. And I think that there will always be room for agencies. Um, yeah. because there, it's just very complicated for some hospitals to have individual contracts, you know, and that's the excuse that I've heard so many times that and insurance. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we can break that at some point, because I think it would just be healthy for the industry. If interpreters were able to build directly, they would be able to make more money and we'll be able to retain talent. And that's the main thing that's happened here in Oregon. You would get folks who would become certified. And they were just not seeing the return on their investment and they would leave. So we created like a revolving door. On top of that, there were some issues where since certification was not legally mandated, it is now so of July, luckily, but since it was not, you had agencies who were contracted with interpreters. When they would get certified, they would actually get less work because now they want to charge more money. 
So you had even more people with certification leave the industry, which is an awful practice. Um, so I think that if the best thing that could happen is if the interpreters could build insurance agencies, stay in the profession, make a more robust workforce, you know, that would benefit both the agencies and interpreters and the patients. And that's what we're looking for, right? We just want to make sure that we have the best professionals staying in the industry. Absolutely. Especially after you get certified. I think that that's, you know, that's, it's a proud moment, uh, you know, for, for an individual, um, you'd put a lot of, of work into it, the, the studying part um, and money, not to mention, right. Just in, in being able to pay for, for your training programs and things of that nature. There's so much involved. There's so many sacrifices that are made. Uh, and then to, to realize that there's not no money in it, <laughs> you know, how are you going to get your money back with after all that? So yes, it's absolutely important. What are the different pockets that we can tap into? Right. If no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that what a lot of times what I see when I go into the Facebook forums, I see this advice, which is coming from the heart. Folks say, hey, I'm new to the industry. What should I do? And what you see repeatedly, hey, apply to ton of agencies, apply to all these agencies. That is a great first step. But who's talking about, hey, build a clientele? Hey, go talk to nonprofits. Go talk to attorneys. Go talk to accountants. Like who else is hiring interpreters and why do you feel that you have to work through an agency? You know, it breaks me when I hear a freelancer that tells me, hi, my name is such and such and I work for this company. Like, are you an employee? No, I'm an independent contractor. Then why are you telling me that you work for a company? Mm -hmm. Just tell me, hey, I'm such and such. I'm an independent interpreter. Great. You know, I even when I was on my way to that meditation retreat, I was carpooling with a guy who was an attorney. I didn't know this. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an interpreter. It's like, oh, I work with interpreters all the time. Let me get your card. All the time. We just have to be open to say, yes, this is me. This is my service. And not feel like we're hiding behind a company, right? That we should feel confident to say, yes, these are my services. They're great. And I know how to bill. And that's fine. You know, like we should feel comfortable with that. I, I love think that's that. Missing. That's so awesome. I I really do. I love that you shared that. We shouldn't because I'm one to have recommend. You know, don't don't put all your eggs in one basket. Meaning in one agency, make sure that you are you know um, going out there and and putting your name out in different agencies. For one, obviously the assignments. Uh, second not everyone's going to work in in an ethical way, unfortunately, sad to say, right? And then the other part, of course, to that is you're not going to necessarily connect with all of these agencies as well. They're, not everyone is going to make you feel like a valued interpreter, but we should be not just putting our names out there with different agencies, but also knocking on doors and opening up our own opportunities. That's that's amazing advice. I absolutely uh, do agree with that. So um, you, we've had a guest here on the show before, Judy Jenner, who also talked about, you know, if you want to do business with attorneys, then figure out where they're hanging out and and go and hang out wherever they're hanging out that's you know kind of like the same thing you're saying is go and knock on the doors and see if maybe they'd rather be working with an independent uh, contractor they just don't know of one right yes. and so they're working through an agency because they're the ones out there marketing and putting their names out yep and you know what helped me a lot Mireya is um 
I wanted to get involved with the community when I got to Portland. I So what I did is I started volunteering on Saturday mornings at least twice per month. And same thing, when I introduced to fo- myself to folks, hey, I'm an interpreter. And I've gotten so much work from that. Because it's not just the people you meet, but also like now they know you're an interpreter and the amount of referrals you get. It's crazy. It's like, oh, hey, Katya from such and such organization said you're an interpreter. Awesome. And uh, something about working with nonprofits is just beautiful, right? I mean, they're doing good work. And that's just, it's, I don't want to say this, but I'm going to have to. It's much better than being in court. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a perfect segue into the next part of our conversation, uh, Carlos, which has to do with nonprofits. You did end up actually uh, getting very involved with OHCIA, which is also a nonprofit and that's doing amazing things. Um, You're part of the board of OHCIA? Yes, I'm actually a president-elect. So starting in January, I'll take that role. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm a little nervous about it, but um, (laughs) the current president has done just an awesome job with me. We've been meeting weekly. uh, So she's been giving me a lot of insight. So I'm super happy for Maria. She's been awesome. That is so great. And so let's get into uh, a little bit about what you did talk about, uh, what OHCIA is about and um, how they've been out in the community and doing some work. But there's been something very specific lately that that occurred that they're trying to really vamp up and it has to do with the registry. So let's talk a little bit about that and what you foresee in the coming months, at least for 2023, what you'd like to see from uh, interpreters out in Oregon. Yes. So we have, as you mentioned, a registry. We're calling it the ID, the OHCIA ID. And what it is, it's a place for interpreters to connect with potential employers. It is free to interpreters. And it is free marketing. You know, nothing better than free marketing than to put your services out there on your own name where potential employers are going to come in. Right now, we have interpretation agencies who are funding this. And the idea is to bring in hospitals, clinics, you know, different companies who work with interpreters who want to come in and connect directly with interpreters. So that is our hope, that we can not only connect interpreters with agencies, but also with other folks who may just hire them directly, you know, cutting out the middleman. That is that is part of the hope. And obviously, we want to help the agencies out. There's a lot of work, and it's just it's beneficial to everyone. Yeah, and what was the inspiration behind this? Why trying to create something where, you know, it could be utilized in Oregon with interpreters? I mean, it's a combination. It sounds like efforts, right? The, the association, uh, interpreting agencies, and then the freelancers themselves. I think, um, again, this has come from Susanna's great, great mind of thinking, how can we really get interpreters' names out there? Because you see, in Oregon, we have a state registry where all everyone who's certified is listed in there. The unfortunate thing is that, like I mentioned to you, a lot of people have left their profession. So it's not very reliable. And at times, companies spend hours going through that thing just trying to find an interpreter. Whereas what's nice about this new registry is we have folks who actively want to participate. Every year, we will reach out to them and say, hey, do you still want to be here? Are you still working as an interpreter? Are you still planning on picking up jobs? 
yes, no, they say, no, we'll take him off. We just want to make it easier for the recruiters. And we want interpreters to know that their name is somewhere that people are actively going and visiting. And uh, yes, right now it's set in Oregon. But, you know, interestingly enough, we've actually had a lot of interpreters from different states that joined the registry. And I love to see that because I love that they're thinking about where the industry may be headed and about connecting with more work and about the fact that it's free marketing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, get your name everywhere you can. Why exactly. not? If it's free, put it out there. Yeah, they're knocking on doors, like you like you had mentioned. So exactly. uh, it's a great uh, door to knock. You'd mentioned uh, also, uh, I wanted to touch on this uh, particular topic. July 1st of this year, there was a major change uh, at the state level. Please correct me if I'm wrong with the information with regards to training and uh, certified interpreters and, and all of that. Talk to us a little bit about what happened out there in Oregon at that level. Yes. So I think it's a great thing. Some folks disagree, but I think it's a great thing. So what happened as of July 1st is that the government said any institution that is getting federal funding has to work with certified medical interpreters. And there's different tiers to it, and I won't get into the details of it, but essentially they need to be in a state registry, which... Right now, there's not enough interpreters in that registry. So it is great for the folks who are already certified because right now it means that any work that comes to a clinic, to an agency, it has to go to those interpreters. So that means more work. And it also means that since now there's a limited resources in the workforce, everyone has to raise the rates to bring them on. So you're having insurance companies that are paying more which trickles to the agency paying more. The clinic saying, oh, I want those interpreters. I'm going to pay more, which, you know, it's just the amount of money. The way it's increased now, I don't think it's anything that we had seen before here in the state. So it's awesome. Medical interpreters are getting more money. And once an insurance company does it, you have the other one that says, oof, our numbers are down on certified interpreters. And it's very simple. You're not paying them enough. Pay them as much as the other one. Pay more. You know, it's almost creating a competitive environment because there's so few interpreters that are certified. Um, and of course, everyone's giving out scholarships, trying to get more people certified and into the profession. And it's just a good time to become a medical interpreter in Oregon. The protections are there, which were not a few years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, when that medical interpreter asked for more money before the agency said, oh, well, I'll just hire someone else. Well, now you can't do that. Now you pay them more money. So it's just, it's been a good thing. And right now that applies for on-site interpreting. Next year, July, 2023, it'll apply for remote interpreting. And, you know, Mireya, the reality is we're not covering, and when I say we, I mean all the agencies, hospitals, the healthcare system, we're not able to only work with certified interpreters. There's not enough not even in Spanish, no, Vietnamese, not in any language. Uh, particularly when you think about the lesser diffusion languages, there's even less interpreters and there's a high demand. We have a large Chukis population, Marshallese population, um, and there's just no interpreters in the registry yet. So the hope is to bring them up to certification and you know help 
but the higher pay will help to get folks in the industry. I can see absolutely in terms of raising the standard for the role of the interpreter. I, I can absolutely see how this supports and helps that that those efforts. However, I'm, I'm there's also this the other side. I'm going to play devil's advocate here with regards to when there's more demand versus supply, and what is happening in the middle there with our LEP patients or you know our our just LEP families. Are they going without the service, or in order to be able to you know be able to meet that demand? Are agencies throwing just anyone out there? I mean, I, I guess I really don't know what the back end to that might look like, but what do you see on both angles? Because now, you know, you're association, you're freelancer, but you also have that insight from, you know, as a language service provider. So what are you seeing in terms of that market trend there? I think we're seeing just about the same thing that's been happening for years, which is try and get a certified interpreter if they're not available bring on someone who's not certified. And that is how LEPs are getting their services. And, you know, there's still not enough uncertified interpreters to meet the demand. So a lot of it is being covered by on-demand interpreting. And that may just be a lack of connection between interpreters and which agencies have the contracts, um, or just flat out, we don't have enough interpreters in the state of Oregon, which, you know, may be very true you know we had been underfunding the profession for years mm. the interpreters who were in left and now we got to bring in more people and actually keep them in so it's been a structural problem for a long time uh but yeah nuts and bolts hats working right now certified if no one's available and non-certified if no one's available on demand got it and i think like anything um before things can can see some sort of of improvement or before we can see light at the end of the tunnel things do get tend to get messy before you know they they get any better so this could be the messy part in trying to make that change and trying to elevate the standards of the profession and the services that are being provided and by whom um so you know there's got to be a a transition period it sounds like right and so uh, i can i can absolutely see how currently Oregon might be going through that transitioning phase. And so things are looking really messy. What are your recommendations for someone? Let's say someone is working out in Oregon um, and would like to get more involved or get more more service or more work, I should say. What do you recommend for anyone that's starting out in the profession? So if you're just starting out, I would recommend you not to quit your full-time job until you're certified. Once you're certified and I understand you can start working before you're certified, but the amount of leverage and negotiations that you have once you have the certificate is astronomically higher. Mm -hmm. When you come in without a certification, the agency already knows what you're willing to work for. But if you come in and you say, hey, I have a certificate, you only have this many people and you kind of need me, you can just come in with a much higher rate and likely they will pick you up. And it's not just you going after the agency they will contact you. Like you're going to have so many agencies calling. Medical interpreters right now have so much work available to them. So I think that would be my first recommendation. Um, next one, leave one day, at least a month, for marketing on your own. You know, don't lose sight that you should have your own clients. Mm. So whether, you know, just find locally what clinics will work for you. And once per month, go visit them. You know, bring some candy, drop them off. 
And what I think is really important is to make a connection with the person. And this is about to sound really fake, but it's just a trick in the sales world. When you come in, figure out what the person's like, whatever conversation you have, come out and take notes. Write it all down. So the next time you come around, you take a look at your notes and you say, oh, Mireya, she likes playing soccer on the weekends. Let me go ask her about this. And they, they're like, oh, wow, this person actually took time to get to know me. Really quickly, you build trust. And, you know, ideally, you are making a connection with them, right? But that helps a lot. You know, if you're visiting five, 10 clinics, meeting three persons per clinic, that'll be helpful. Great advice, Carlos. I think I always love it when we're able to uh, make some of our experiences together with, you know, our current work experience that we're able to kind of bring in some of these things, pull things in so that it, it supports us in what we're currently doing. I I'd lastly just would like to ask if there is anything other than what we've already covered that you would like to share with this particular audience when it comes to the industry. Uh, yes, I missed one tip. New interpreters get registered on the OHCIA registry. That's right. <laughs> and all of that information will actually be linked to the episode notes for today's episode. So make sure that you go back to the episode notes and uh, check out all the links and the information, including the one on meditation, because you're going to send that one as Absolutely. well. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. What has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to have you here on the show today, Carlos, and be able to share your story. And of course, the story of OHCIA uh, and, and just hopefully you have more people that are registering on the registry and that are coming out of the woodworks per se, <laughs> to be able to connect with you and uh, with the association. Thank you. Definitely. so much. Well, thank you, Mireya, for having such a platform to allow us to come in and chat about this. And thank you for the invite. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care. You too. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.